Our reading is Matthew 5, 1 to 16, and on page 968, and for larger print, 1473. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives out light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Thanks, Catherine. Should we pray together? The psalmist writes in um, Psalm 119, Your word, Lord, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I pray as we look at this subject tonight and a little later on as we come to reflect on the back end of that passage that was just read, that you would indeed be that lamp and that light to our feet. Just show us uh, what you want us to learn tonight, that we might be more faithful as we live for you in the week ahead. So please help us, give us energy to focus, to focus our minds and our hearts, and please would you be our teacher tonight, I pray. Amen. Great, well in um, three Sundays, well four Sundays from now, we're going to be Carols by Candlelight on the 17th in the evening, and so we've got a week, uh, three evenings now, up to Carols by Candlelight, where we're going to be doing something slightly different, we're going to be looking at different topics, hot topics. Um, The genesis of this series was um, largely born out of those questionnaires that many of you filled out quite a while ago, and there were a number of things that came up in them that people wanted to be addressed and they haven't for different reasons been able to sort of fit within the series that we've done over the last term or so. So we're going to address three over the next um, three weeks. Um, Tonight I'm going to be thinking with us a little bit about the subject of Christ and culture. Uh, Kind of what does it look like to be faithful to Jesus Christ as we live in the culture around us? Um, It's a massive subject. If you went to a theological college you'd probably spend at least two terms on it. Uh, probably longer and so I appreciate it's a massive subject we can just touch on tonight Um, but I'd like to try and spend quite a bit of time tonight just setting the context before we look at the back end of Matthew chapter 5 
Um, so there'll be quite a long lead into the Bible passage. But just to help us to kind of wrestle with this question, because it's not an easy one. Uh, next week we're going to be thinking on around the whole area of depression. Uh, again, a massive subject. Um, but just begin to think a bit about um, what the Bible has to say about depression and perhaps how we can respond and help those around us who are suffering. And uh, then Wellesley's going to be addressing a, a more theological question in three weeks' time. The question of um, once saved, always saved. How does that work? Um, so we'll be thinking a bit about that. But we're going to think tonight about this issue of Christ and culture. And it really links well, I think, with the series that um, we started in Daniel in the mornings, Daniel 1 to 6, uh, earlier this term. And we're going to carry on in the book of Daniel in the evenings uh, in February after Christmas. So we will complete Daniel and look at chapters 7 to 12, which are wonderful. But if you remember the Daniel series, this is an image that I put up in most of the morning talks. Um, Do you ever feel like a red dot in a grey world? If you're a Christian, you often will feel kind of isolated, marginalized, like most people in the culture around you are running in a totally different direction. You feel like a kind of fish swimming upstream. Uh, And we thought about how do we therefore live faithfully for Christ in a godless world? Uh, And you and I will know and recognize that there's huge pressure for us to conform. Uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome, doesn't he? And he says, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But there's great pressure to conform to the pattern of our world. Uh, And so we're going to think a bit about that. And I I guess if you keep an eye on the news, particularly in the public sphere, the Christian voice is becoming increasingly silenced and marginalized. And so it's going to be harder and harder for us in the public sphere, particularly in this country, to stand for Jesus. So I want you to think tonight a bit about the word worldview. Um, There's all sorts of different attempts at explaining what a worldview is, but I want you to think of it like a pair of glasses. A worldview, in a sense, is a set of lenses through which you see the world. So in other words, as you seek to dissect and understand 21st century culture in Britain, what do you see? What is it that's going through your head and your heart? Because that is essentially your worldview. And we're going to think a bit about that. And I want us to see that our worldviews may well be quite different. I'll give you an example. Just have a look at that picture on the screen. That picture will mean very different things to different people in different generations. Uh, some of you will look at that picture on the screen and just say, it's just a picture of two blokes sitting by an open fire having a nice chinwag. I wonder if you're not wrong, it's two guys sitting by a fire having a chin wag. But some of you will see it slightly differently. You'll actually be able to identify the characters. Who are they? Regan? And Gorbachev. Brilliant. Some of you will recognize who they are. To some people, this photo will mean more than just two people talking. You'll know the history. This is a really significant moment in history that in many ways marks the end of the Cold War and brought peace to um, Europe. If you're a Soviet, if you're a Russian, you might look at this photo with great frustration because it might speak to you of kind of American capitalism. If you're an American, you might look at this picture and see it as a photo of power and success. The point is, we all look at this photo and it means different things to us. I guess in part at least, depending on our worldview. So if you take that analogy and you then look at the world around us, what do you see when you look out at the world around us. Because if a worldview is sort of the lenses through which I see the world, I think a helpful understanding of culture is thinking of culture as a lived worldview. There's a particular way that I see the world and I then live in light of that, isn't it? I'm going to hopefully help us to see that there should be a Christian worldview with which we, a Christian lens through which we should see the world. But 
what we value is then expressed in our culture, isn't it? You think about different cultures in the world that you've visited when you've traveled perhaps on holiday. Uh, Whatever it is that that culture values is expressed in their culture, isn't it? And so there's lots of differences. And the challenge for us as Christians is, how do we kind of engage with our culture? How do we celebrate culture? How do we build culture? How do we resist culture, perhaps? Maybe in certain circumstances, how do we even reject culture? There's good in culture, there's a lot of negative things in culture. So kind of, it's a wrestling match. How do we engage with these subjects? And we're going to think about that this evening. And just by way of introduction, think of that, the, the, the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 12, where he speaks the Jewish Shema, the summary of the law, when he's asked, which is the greatest of all the commandments? And he says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind and with all of your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater commandment than these. And here you see straight away that there's a clear desire for God in each of us for us to love him and put him first. But we've also got to live out that relationship horizontally, haven't we? With the world around us, with our neighbors. And so even here in a summary of the law, there's there's two sets of relationships. There's our relationship with God, there's a relationship with those around us. And so we need to wrestle with kind of what is that relationship and how does our culture, how, how are we to engage with our culture I'm going to give you a, a few examples from history. If the detail of this kind of loses you, don't worry. Just try and get the broad principle, which is that through history, people have viewed this subject in all sorts of different ways. Uh, but I'll give you a few examples, because some here will be able to sort of hang on some of these examples, which will be familiar to you. Uh, you've probably heard of Augustine in the 4th and 5th century, one of the early church fathers. He talked about the city of God or the city of man. You might have read a famous book by that title. And he talked about two distinct kingdoms, a kingdom ruled by God and a kingdom ruled by the devil, essentially. And they're in conflict with each other. It's a wonderful work written in the 4th and 5th century. Uh, You might have heard of John Calvin, the famous French reformer, um, active during the um, Reformation in Europe. And his famous phrase on this issue was, distinct yet not separate. Christians are called to be distinctive, but not separate. And this is what Martin Luther came to understand when he, as we looked at in the Reformation, he went off to be a monk in a monastery and he came to realize the gospel affects all of life and God didn't want us to withdraw from the world, but to be distinctive within it. And so that was one idea of the 16th century. Uh, you come to the 19th century, a guy called Edward Tyler, you might have heard of, he's described as the father of anthropology, which is the study of kind of mankind. And Edward Tyler saw culture as progress. So his view was that every subsequent generation that came added progress to the previous culture or the culture of the previous generation. Um, C.S. Lewis in the 20th century was more cynical. He said cultural progress he was quite critical of. He said actually you need the gospel to transform lives. And that actually culture just replaces culture, but it doesn't necessarily become more God-fearing. In fact, we're seeing the opposite, aren't we? Uh, in 1950s, there was a, a very famous book, and you might have heard of it if you're around at the time, by a guy called Richard Niebuhr, Christ and Culture. And he talked about the Christian faith and culture being in tension. And there was a sort of wrestle between the two. Um, and Harvey Conn, who was a famous American missionary to Korea, talked about a changing, uh, an, an eternal world, word in a changing world, world. God's word never changes, but we have to seek to apply it in an ever-changing world. And I guess the point of of giving those illustrations is there's all sorts of different ways of engaging in this subject. And there's truth in all of the things that these people have said. 
But I give you those examples to say that all the way through the centuries, people have wrestled with this question, Christ and culture. It's not simple. Uh, It's not a kind of binary. But here are three kind of introductory things for you to take home from this. Firstly, I want us to see that it's dangerous to treat culture as neutral. Uh, You know what it's like when you um, go on holiday? Uh, You come from this country, which is normal for you, and then you step into another country, and there's another language, there's another currency perhaps, there's a different way of doing things. It feels foreign, doesn't it? so, So often we would say UK culture is normal or neutral, and every other culture is different. But if a French person came to England, they'd say French culture is normal and the English are different. So it depends on where you're coming from, doesn't it? So culture isn't neutral. Uh, That's the first thing to note. Second thing is, I don't think that we are passive consumers of culture. In other words, the culture around us shapes us more than we would like to think. Yes, as people, we might help to shape culture. But doesn't culture also shape us? Doesn't the culture around us affect the way that we think, the way that we behave? And so it works both ways, doesn't it? And I think we ought to see that culture affects us and shapes our thinking more than we would like to think. Um, you know the analogy of the frog, which if you put it into a boiling pan of water, uh, as the illustration goes, it would hop out. But you put a frog in a cold um, pot of water and turn up the heat slowly, and it will slowly cook, and it will stay there and die. And I think it's the sense of we're so surrounded by things in our culture, if we're not careful, the subtlety of it and the normalness of it, it starts to infiltrate the way we think, the way that we behave, and it just becomes normal to us. And so as Christians, we mustn't just assume that what is normal to the world around us is necessarily God-honoring. And you can think about different examples. I mean, just take the mobile phone. When I grew up, there wasn't a mobile phone. I'm not even that old. I remember getting the first pager, and then we got one of the first Nokia kind of brick phones where we used to play Snake. Some of you will remember that. But you go, not in that long a period, from a time when we didn't have any mobile phones to a time now where particularly the younger generation constantly on the phone. You just have to go to an airport or um, a train station, and they're just on the phones all the time. See, there's been a, a massive change in the way we communicate, and it's pretty subtle, isn't it? Uh, children's handwriting isn't as good today as it was because so much is word processed. People's spelling and grammar isn't as good because computers self-correct. This is just stuff that just is normal now. But there's been a subtle change, and we're perhaps not aware of it. Uh, And mobile phone is a wonderful technology, but it can do great damage to the way that we communicate. So there's a real subtlety in what goes on. And I just give you those illustrations to make the point that we mustn't assume that the culture around us is neutral and doesn't affect us in good ways or bad ways. There's all sorts that can shape us. Now, in approaching this, I guess there are two um, extremes which are equally unhelpful. One is to say, well, culture threatens the gospel. There's too much in the world that's godless, so kind of withdraw. The other says, um, culture enriches the gospel, so maybe the gospel is moldable. We just need to reshape the Bible and the gospel to fit kind of the modern era. And both extremes are very dangerous for very different reasons. And so we have to wrestle with finding some sort of middle ground, a kind of tension in this whole issue of Christ and culture. Um, appreciating common grace, all that's good in, in, in culture, but also rejecting and exposing all that is wrong. So where are we today in the 21st century? I've got a few buzzwords I'm going to put on the screen that I think help summarize something of the values of our culture today, particularly the ones that challenge our Christian faith. Here they are. Truth. In the 21st century, truth is not an in-word. 
Uh, lots of people today would pride themselves on the fact that there isn't truth or truth can't be known or truth is very relative and fluid. That's a huge change from a generation, two generations ago. Truth is not a very popular word today. And if you hold to absolute truth, um, you're seen as bigoted. Even relativists who hold to the fact that there's no such thing as an absolute truth, which is an absolute statement, bigoted themselves. We all can be. And see, there's, there's danger with holding to truth in our culture. Now, truth can be denied, a kind of atheist, agnostic position. It can be distorted, heresy. It can be displaced with the great isms of the world, materialism, um, uh, liberalism, narcissism, which is the, the sort of pl- uh, seeking pleasure. But truth is something that's not very popular in our, in our culture. Um, individualism, I think, is becoming one of the biggest problems of our culture. We're so individualistic. You just have to look at the erosion of family life to see that this is a big problem in our culture. And yet when people come together in community, it's a wonderfully powerful thing. And the gospel lies at the heart of that. But we're very individualistic. I think our culture is anti-authority. We're very sceptical of authority because of the abuses of power. Living through world wars, genocides. So as a culture, we're very sceptical of authority. Of course, there's authority that's very abusive and there's authority that serves. But generally speaking, we're pretty anti-authority. And we're anti-confessional, particularly my generation, uh, both in, in the idea of Christian repentance. It's not very popular. Why do we need to talk about repentance? Let's just love each other. It's the sort of language of my generation. But we're also anti-confessional in that we're increasingly marginalized in speaking truth in the public sphere. And so it's easy for Christians just to go quiet. And we're a culture that longs for autonomy. But here's the thing, as I've reflected on this one, there's a big difference between freedom and autonomy. I'll give an example of how dangerous this is. Can any of the young people tell me who this is? Or one of the old people even, Irene? This is Elsa from the film Frozen, okay? So this is just sort of common things that children will be watching today. Listen to the words of Elsa as she breaks out into song. I'm not going to sing it, don't worry. Uh, Elsa sings in the film Frozen, It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. So young people are growing up and sort of singing these words and reinforcing this truth that autonomy is a wonderful thing. And yet autonomy doesn't bring freedom because if I seek to be autonomous, live independently of God, it doesn't actually free me, it enslaves me. True freedom comes from sitting under the lordship of Christ. And the last one, which is a real mouthful, social constructivism, which is just a posh way of saying we live in a culture that wants to construct our own identities. I am who I say I am. And when you live in a culture that seeks to do this, there's no place for revelation, is there? No place for God to speak into our world and say, this is who I say I am, and this is who I say you are. Because we just live in a culture that says, well, I'll define who I am, thank you very much. I'm free. Now, that's my attempt at trying to sort of discern 21st century culture. You could probably add your own words, and there might be certain elements you disagree with. But at the end of the day, this is some of the prevailing ideologies of our culture, And we need to think about how we're going to engage with them. I'm going to give you a few scriptures which, at least at first reading, suggest that we ought to withdraw from an increasingly godless world. 
Jesus speaks in John chapter 18 and he says this, didn't he? My kingdom is not of this world. And at first reading that would suggest, well, if his kingdom is not of this world, then we ought to be seeking to build another kingdom, which means that this world really doesn't matter. It's a conclusion some come to. One we've already looked at, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, the world in its present form is passing away. And you might conclude, well, if it's passing away, then it doesn't really matter. Let's just invest in eternity. Uh, 1 John chapter 2, do not love the world or anything in the world. And so as you read these sort of verses, um, they, they seem to suggest a kind of conclusion that if we engage with our culture, it's a distraction at best and kind of idolatry at worst. The Bible, excuse me, the Bible seems to be clear that culture is a dangerous thing that shapes us in an unhelpful way. So we ought to kind of withdraw and we just need to focus on the spiritual. And yet, as you look more closely at these verses in their context, don't they say something slightly different? Because yes, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. But did he not say at the beginning of his gospel, um, repent, the kingdom of God is near. So it's not so much that some other world out there, but Jesus was seeking to bring his kingdom on earth. And we pray that in the Lord's Prayer, don't we? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus is clear that it's not just all about eternity. This world does matter. Um, Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then if you go on in Romans to chapter 13 and 14 particularly, it's really practical chapters that talk about living in this world. How do we relate to authority? How do we relate to one another? And so we have to see this verse in context. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says the world in its present form is passing away. And yet the context is talking about marriage, saying invest your life now for Christ, building for eternity. So it's not such a clear distinction as the world to come and the world now. And in 1 John 2, don't love the world or anything in the world. The world here isn't really speaking of the physical world, but more about the corrupted world. So when John says don't love the world, he's not saying don't love what we have around us. He's saying don't love that which is not God-honoring. Don't pursue that which is not God-honoring. So do you see each of these verses that at least initially seem to suggest we ought to withdraw from the world, actually in their wider context say something slightly different. give you one last one. James chapter 4, he says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? But again, in its context, he's not calling us to abandon creation, but rather to abandon the ungodly influences of it. Um, James is perhaps the most practical book of all the New Testament letters. So the context around these different passages help us to understand something of what we're to understand uh, on this subject. Now, I know that's a very long introduction, but what I've tried to do is just paint a bit of a picture of how people have thought about this issue in the past paint a bit of a a snapshot picture of what our culture is like today because it's into that we need to come to God's word and think about how it might help us to live lives to honor God so could you turn up uh, Matthew chapter 5 again that Catherine read for us this comes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount which is Matthew chapters 5, 6 and 7 in which Jesus speaks to his inner crowd of disciples with all sorts of other people listening in and at the heartbeat of the, the Sermon on the Mount is really Jesus turning the values of the world on their head, speaking about what the kingdom of God looks like. And you've seen the verses there. We're going to just focus on 13 to 16. 
I'd like you to think for a moment about salt. Um, Salt's imperishable, isn't it? And salt, particularly in ancient times, would preserve stuff. And salt, we know from our days at the seaside, makes food taste better. So that's what salt does. But notice here where Jesus speaks to his disciples, he doesn't say to them, you have salt. What does he say? You are salt. Which is interesting, isn't it? You are salt. Now why is that significant? It's significant because salt works by coming into contact with things. Uh, If I have salt in a salt cellar and I have a lovely bowl of warm chips, but I don't put the salt on the chips, the chips don't taste so good, even though the salt is a wonderful thing. It's got to come in contact. If I have a piece of meat and I have no refrigerator and I cover the meat in salt, it's only when the salt then comes into contact with the meat that it's able to preserve it. As John um, says, slightly tongue-in-cheek, you cannot blame meat for going off. That's what meat does. You can blame the salt for not being there to preserve it. So the point of salt is it has to come in contact with something for it to be effective. We're here where Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He doesn't say you have salt. He says you are salt. You've got to come in contact with a godless, decaying world and be salt in it. To help preserve all that's good in the world. To help help the world to effectively taste better. To bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. So when he describes here the disciples as being salt of the earth, he's saying, you've got to get involved in the world. Yes, you're called to be distinctive, but you're not called to be separate. You need to be in the world, you need to be my witnesses. And then he uses that same idea, but paints it in a very different picture. Another analogy, that of light. You are, verse 14, the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. No, instead they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. The point of a lamp is it's not meant to be hidden. If I turn on the lamp by my bed and then I put a great cushion over the top, it's not going to do very much. The whole purpose of the lamp is it's meant to shine and lighten up the room. And again, here he doesn't say to the disciples, you have light. What does he say? You are light. You are meant to shine. The church is meant to shine in a dark and godless world. And you see that in verse 16, isn't it? In the same way, let your light shine before men or others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. In other words, when the world sees Christians being light, it's meant to point them to God. The church is meant to be a little picture of heaven. Of course, it's only going to ever be a little picture because of all of our brokenness, the states of our hearts. But as God shapes us to become more like him, bit by bit, a watching world sees how people come together, love one another, forgive one another, are full of truth and peace and joy. And the watching world says, why are they shining so brightly in the darkness of the world? What is it about them that is different? And that is why Jesus says you are light and you are salt. You don't just have salt. You don't just have light. You are these things. And notice too, he doesn't just say you are salt, you are light. He says you are salt of the earth. You are light of the world. I can't be salty if I live in a monastery. I can't be a light if I hide in my home or hide in my church. I will be salt when I get out there amongst a decaying world to speak truth to people. 
I will be light when we leave here and go out to our various workplaces, our homes, our families, and shine for Jesus. And I think this passage begins to help us to see how we live in the middle. We don't want to say culture is so depraved and and so negative that we just reject it and we live in a little cozy, holy huddle. But nor do we want to say on the other extreme, culture is changing so fast and in order to engage in culture, we've got to change the gospel because then it'll be more palatable to people. As I said at the beginning, we've got to find a middle ground, a tension, where we can be faithful to Christ, but live in the world. Rub shoulders with unbelievers, love unbelievers. And that's a challenge for us, isn't it? Um, Just think of the words of Jesus. He prays a wonderful prayer before he goes to the cross in John chapter 17. And this is what he prays to his heavenly father. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. That's a wonderful summary, isn't it? Jesus wanted his disciples to stay in the world because, of course, what happens after he dies and he rises again? He speaks to his disciples who would become the apostles and he says, go and be my witnesses in all Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's why he doesn't want them to come out of the world because they're to be witnesses to the world. But as he sends them out, he prays for them, prays that they would be protected Praise that they would stay faithful. And that would be Jesus' ongoing prayer for us today. I'm not taking you out of the world, but I pray that you'll be protected in the world from the evil one. So as I close, I'm going to give us five really practical suggestions. Each is just a sentence. Five things that you could perhaps think about, wrestle with, as you seek to kind of engage with this whole subject. And I hope these are helpful. Um, Here's the first one. Let's be a people who celebrate all that's good in culture. I don't know about you, when I turn on the 10 o'clock news or I read my newspaper, it's pretty depressing, isn't it? There's just so much rubbish in the world. But there's also so much that is good in our culture, loads. And actually, the more you think about it, the more you will see things that are good. So appreciate the arts, appreciate culture, appreciate language, appreciate music. Appreciate some of the things that are going on in our culture that are good. People who are taking care of those who are fatherless. And the work of people who are lobbying governments to change laws. Think of how the church in different parts of the world has really sought to address the problem of immigration and and, and be a blessing to refugees. Think of just the other day, Operation Christmas Child. We were down there at the warehouse in town, loading boxes up, wanting to be a blessing to people who have nothing. There's loads in our culture that's good. And it's not just Christians who are doing good. In fact, often it's people who don't yet know Christ who are leading the way and doing lots of good things. We want to celebrate those things. Celebrate what's good. Secondly, be aware of sin and the subtlety of it. I said at the beginning that culture isn't neutral. And we do need to be careful that we don't allow the changing culture around us just to be absorbed. Rather like the mobile telephone has become so ingrained now in the young people's lives that people are addicted to phones without even realizing it. We need to recognize the subtlety. And just because something is culturally acceptable doesn't mean it's God-honoring. And that's when the real crunch comes for the church. Will I flow flow with the tide or will I cut against it? And I think increasingly, particularly in the more liberal end of the church, it has a very soft center. Lots of language of loving one another, which is a good thing. But when the big issues come, people just go quiet or fall over. Let's just ignore that issue. And that's not God honoring at all. 
We've got to engage with these issues with a hard center, but doing it in love with great grace and great wisdom. And third one, I think this is an exciting one, get involved. Um, get involved in the mess of our world. Get involved in this community. I mean, if you want to know anything of the heart of God, think about the incarnation. God's not a God who says, get involved in my world without having first done it himself. <laughs> Christmas, Emmanuel, God with us. God knows what it's like to get involved in the mess of our world. And he calls us to get involved in it too, doesn't he? To engage ourselves in the darkness, but to not become conformed by it. So let's think about, into the new year, as a church, how can we engage this community? How can we help to transform things that are not God-honoring? How can we speak truth and life and joy into people who are broken? And we need to get involved in our world. Uh, For all of those things, this is crucial, the fourth thing. Um, I want to encourage us to always look at our world through gospel lenses. The gospel, as we've said many, many times, is not just a system by which I'm saved. The gospel is so transformative of everything. And the gospel as Christians should be shaping everything we do in our life, every decision that we make. Um, I love the psalmist who says in Psalm 36, verse 9, In your light, Lord, we see light. See, it's through gospel lenses that we see things differently. And so we need to think about how the death and the resurrection of Christ and the indwelling of his spirit today changes everything for us. And finally, I want to encourage us to stand firm, but to do it in love. Um, I've been reading in the last couple of months quite a lot of uh, a man called Oz Guinness. He's a wonderful writer, uh, a great thinker. And he has this lovely line in one of his books on this very subject where he says that the church in the 21st century needs to have hearts that melt with compassion and backbones of steel. And I love that. We need to have hearts of compassion. We need to love our world. We need to be gentle with people. We need to be gracious. We need to be humble. We don't want to come across as always having the answers. Truth, truth, truth in an unhelpful way. But equally we've got to have backbones of steel. We've got to stand on truth. Rather like Martin Luther in the Reformation. Who said, I am bound. My conscience is held captive by the word of God. That kind of attitude. And that takes great wisdom, doesn't it? How do I have a backbone of steel and yet have a heart that melts with compassion? Now, there's all sorts of different things there, and and there might be too much there for some. There might be some things that have lost on you. But the point of looking at this in quite broad sense uh, and looking at different parts of Scripture and spending quite a bit of time looking at the context of it is just to help us to see that this is a, a complicated subject. We need to pray for great wisdom in how we can stay faithful for Christ living in his world. But I want us to have confidence that as we keep faithfully preaching the gospel and teaching through the scriptures, as we keep standing for gospel truth, as we keep engaging and loving a lost and broken world, we're doing everything that Jesus did. Isn't he the most perfect example of a man who had a heart that melted with compassion, yet had a backbone of steel? He loved broken people, but he went to the cross. And he went to the cross to rescue broken people. And so as we think about this whole issue of Christ and culture, let's affirm all that's good in culture. Let's keep our eyes on the cross. And let's seek to be faithful to him as we engage our culture with Christ, pointing people to Jesus this Christmas. I hope that's been helpful. Amen.